to Revelation chapter 7 uh, this morning. Revelation chapter 7. Uh, as you turn there, I just want to take a moment to, uh, this is maybe a little different, but just to posture ourselves before God's word. God promises that his word doesn't return void, that it is that which revives the soul, gives comfort to the grieving and to the heart hurting. And so we can expect, even as we jump into Revelation 7, uh, to encounter something of God's grace and kindness. So it's important that we would just do that little woosah moment, you know, <sighs> decompress a little bit and just kind of posture ourselves before his word. He is with us and he is near now to speak to us according to his word. So Revelation chapter 7, we're going to cover this whole chapter uh, this morning. So Revelation chapter 7, I'm going to read the whole thing and we'll jump right into it. John, the, the revelator, the visionary, uh, John writes this in chapter 7. He states, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun east with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing. Oh, that should be in bold right there. They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they are crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him 
day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Who can stand? As we come now to chapter 7, we should hear that question kind of ringing in our ears from how chapter 6 has concluded. If we would have gone back to chapter 6, you look at the very end there, there's the question, who can stand? And if you remember from chapter 6, it is revealed to us the first view, if you will, of what are these final judgments. It's the seal judgments. It began, as we've talked about, with the four horsemen being unleashed. And these four horsemen are images, remember, of tribulation. And they are unleashed to bring about political unrest, civil unrest, economic unrest, and natural unrest. These four horsemen wreak havoc on the world. They bring tribulation upon the world. But if you remember, this is so important to catch as we jump into these texts, is that these themes, these four categories of tribulation, of unrest, are not new to Revelation. They go all the way back to the Old Testament, actually very early on in the Old Testament, when God's people are going through the wilderness wanderings, and it's these blessings and cursings that God pronounces over his people, and if they are to disobey him, he brings these four categories of judgment upon them. So whether it's the wilderness experience, or whether it's into the conquest age where they're entering the promised land, we've been studying Gideon in our DC, it's all a part of these layers of tribulation that are brought upon God's people. It's natural unrest. It's warring against one another. There's civil unrest going on. There's all these dimensions of judgment unleashed upon the world, even then into the exile period of of God's people, where they're taken out of their land. They are suffering these judgments even in the Old Testament. And again and again, Scripture will refer to these four categories of unrest as patterns of tribulation through the Old Testament, but then you get to the New Testament, and when the disciples come to Jesus and say, when will be the final time of your return? And Jesus will once again outline these four categories of unrest, which is in some way to recognize that our experience is going to be something of tribulation. Jesus says, hey, until I return these layers of tribulation are going to be happening. Jesus even will state in Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, this generation, the generation that he is speaking to and that moment, will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation will not pass away until they see these four layers of judgment, tribulation coming to bear in some degree. They will experience it. In other words, the idea is the age of the church will be an age of tribulation. Perhaps in intensifying degrees, but nonetheless, 
We will suffer. What have we suffered over the last couple years? Think through it. Has there been political unrest? Huh, check, right? Has there been civil unrest? Okay, check, right? Has there been economic unrest? I don't know what I'm doing with my job, this COVID thing, I'm not sure what's happening, right? And then finally, has there been natural unrest, a global pandemic for crying out loud? We've seen all these layers of unrest at work, right? These are, as we've been studying, God's judgments upon a world that says, don't look to God for the solution, look here. Politics is going to solve your problem, right? These different civil agendas, they're going to solve your problem. If you just go for these solutions, and these solutions stand apart from God, and God says, hey, if you're going to find solution apart from me, you better know that judgment will come. You will, you will feel the emptiness of your false saviors. Jesus gives the world up to futility. It's vanity. You want to pursue these false saviors? Go ahead. Go pursue them, but it will be my judgment upon you. The age of the church will be an age of tribulation. These four categories will be felt in some degree. So the question then, as we kind of move from that reality of tribulation, then into seal number five, we saw that this tribulation will lead to the death of God's people. Part of this judgment will mean martyrdom for the church. There are martyrs under the altar. This tribulation will be felt, and it will be felt in grave intensity. But then finally, seal six is open, and what do we find? But the day of the Lord is upon us. It's judgment day. It's time when all things are brought to account. All powers in heaven and earth are brought to this comprehensive account before the wrath of the Lamb. And so those the powers on earth, they hide in the mountains and they call on the mountains to seal them in from the wrath of the Lamb. And in doing so, they cry out, who can stand? Who can stand through this tribulation? Who can stand through these layers of unrest? And who can ultimately stand against the wrath of the Lamb? Answer, chapter 7, verse 9. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages. What are they doing? They are standing. And who are they standing before? They are standing before the Lamb. This, as we'll see, is the church. The church amidst all kinds of tribulation and unrest, even to the day of judgment, will be those who stand. Now, I don't know about you, but hasn't this past season felt kind of undoing, exhausting, stirring up fear within us and apprehension and all kinds of doubts and, and, and wondering what will this season ultimately bring about? Some of us have felt unique struggles through this season that go beyond those layers of unrest. Again, the question is posed, who's going to stand through all this? 
Who will stand through such difficulty, through such trauma, through such unrest? And who ultimately will stand before the wrath of the Lamb? The idea here is the church will stand. But what's found, the gems, if you mine this text, what you're going to find is four particular gems that help the church stand in times of tribulation. So what are the four? What are the four essentials, the four gems, if you will, that help the church stand in times of tribulation? How will they ultimately stand? Well, first, they will stand as a sealed community. That may be weird verbiage, but as we look at the text, it's beautiful in its meaning. In verse 1, we're invited into something of this heavenly intermission, right? John has stopped talking about the seals, and now he slows down, and he kind of gives us something of an intermission. He's explaining the content of who can stand. And so John sees four angels holding back four winds. The four winds, if we'd go back to the Old Testament, specifically Zechariah chapter 6, that actually references these horses or chariots, will also refer to these powers as winds. Again, it's these four layers of unrest or tribulation that is coming. And these four angels are withholding this tribulation. Why? Well, John says, verse 2, he says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth until... We have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, the idea of sealing comes from, again, the Old Testament. Remember, we don't take our newspaper and tabloids and just, like, impose them upon the text. We let Scripture interpret. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, good. Scripture must interpret Scripture. So when you see these strange images, we got to look back. What is the sealing that's happening? Well, we look back to the Old Testament. What do we find? Well, Exodus chapter 12. If you remember the Exodus time, the, the Passover and the, the door lentils that were supposed to be sealed with blood, right? It was the idea that this seal kept God's people from this judgment or it preserved them through the judgment. Or if you go on to other texts, particularly uh, within Ezekiel 9. Again, it's this exile period. God's judgment is, is ready to be poured out upon his people. And Ezekiel is saying, no, God, what, what are you doing? And God actually says, I'm, a, I'm raising up some executioners to go through the camp. And, and if I find one who is faithful to me, I will save them. I will seal them. I will keep them from this judgment. And who alone stands but Ezekiel, who is given the seal. So this seal is this idea of those who belong to God who are preserved through judgment. But then you get into the New Testament, of course, and we seal, see this seal is actually a reference to the promise of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it states this, in Christ you also, when you hear, heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you came to faith in Jesus and believed in him, you were sealed 
with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The seal is the evidence of our belonging to God. It is our authorized standing in Jesus, if you will, our guarantee for glory and our empowerment till the end. The seal is much then for the Christian. So it all entails belonging and authority and assurance and empowerment. In other words, this idea of being sealed with the Holy Spirit is not some sort of administrative detail or just kind of some doctrinal fine print that is just supposed to be set to the side. Oh, you got the seal? Yeah, you trust in Jesus? Okay, you're good. You pass. You're sealed. As if giving of the Spirit can be just relegated to just doctrinal information. This seal, listen, is the Holy Spirit, right? This seal is the conscious experience of the third person of the Godhead active at work in you and for you. The seal is the Holy Spirit. So it's the idea of Acts chapter 10. Do you know the story, what happens there? Peter is kind of confused because he's a bit of a racist, to be honest. And so he's saying, he goes to Cornelius and he, well, God told me to share the gospel with this guy, although he's a Gentile, so he's belligerent in actually obeying, and so he shares the gospel, and as he's sharing the gospel, suddenly strange things are happening. They're speaking in tongues. Even for us today, for some of you, that would be kind of like, okay, things just got weird, I'm walking away. But in these moments, they are speaking in tongues and they are worshiping God. And Peter's conclusion to the manifestation of those particular moments, of those actions, is that the Gentiles now have the seal of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is in them. Again, not as doctrinal fine print, just to know in your head, but to be experienced. They are manifesting the Holy Spirit, and so Peter, although kind of a racist himself, he's saying, actually, the Gentiles got the Holy Spirit. They've been sealed. They've been marked by God. They are the ones who are now carrying the manifest presence of God, this that proves their belonging. It proves the fact that they carry the authority of Christ, that they are those being empowered by the Spirit until Jesus comes again. This is the sealing that is spoken of in this text. And folks, this is how the church stands. Don't try to do this life on your own. You can't. Scripture actually tells us you try to shoulder this life, it will crush you. Those in their prime will fall weary, but those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. How? by the sealing of the Holy Spirit, by the powerment of the Holy Spirit. Do you know the Holy Spirit? Do you know this sealing? Well, I know the doctrine. I know people have told me that if I trust in Jesus, well, I got him. Do you got him? Because you won't stand without him. That's the point. You can't endure this tribulation. You can't endure these moments. That's why we see the church falling away in this season. That's why, again, again, social media, another Christian falling away. Yep. 
not a surprise. Through tribulation, the church will be exposed for what it truly is. Do you have the seal? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Is he active in you? And it doesn't mean just all the crazy, you know, speaking in tongues kind of stuff. But do you got conviction at work in you? Do you care about holiness? Do you care about knowing your God? Do you care about his word being kind of manna to your soul? Do you care? It's the spirit who gives appetite for all that stuff. Do you have the Holy Spirit? The church that stands is a sealed church. They carry the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul will not only speak of the sealing of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1, but he'll pray, oh, he'll pray for the church in Ephesus that the eyes of their heart would be open to the resurrection power at work within them, the Holy Spirit, and that will that that empowerment will actually enable them to fill all in all with the authority of Christ. You see, you will not only fail to endure <laughs> through tribulation, but God has called you more so to be a light through the darkness. Not to just kind of survive, but to thrive for the sake of the kingdom. That is the sealing of the Spirit upon you who will enable you not to just endure, but actually to make great impact for the sake of the kingdom, even through great tribulation. The church that stands is a sealed community. I can just stay there and get all kind of fired up about that point. But we've got to move on. Secondly, the church that stands, stands as a singing community. Verse 4, John hears a description of those who have been sealed, and it's a military census. All those 12,000s right there from verse 5 down to verse 8, all these tribes that are being declared are, is actually a military census. You can go back to Numbers chapter 1, and what's happening there is very, something very similar. It's this rattling off of all these people, these names, these tribes, as those who are going to war. It is a military census, and it's important just to notice, verse 5, who's leading that census? Notice, look at it. Don't look at me. <laughs> verse 5, who's leading it? Who's the first to be declared? The tribe of what? And who is from the tribe of Judah? Christ. <laughs> the lamb who stands as though he was slain is leading this military procession. It's incredible, right? So here Judah leads, Jesus is leading this military procession. And so the question then for us, okay, who's this 144,000? Well, notice, notice the text, what it says. Notice what John heard as a military census in verse 4. But then notice what he sees in verse 9. He hears the census, but then he turns and sees this innumerable amount of people. It's the same kind of thing in chapter 5 when it's John who hears the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to take the scroll, but then he sees, and he sees not a lion, but a lamb. Same thing is happening here. He hears the census, 
and now turns to look. And he now sees this innumerable amount of people, and they're not just Hebrew people. They are from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the question then stands, well, who are the 144,000? Who are the ones who are actually sealed? Who are the ones enlisted in this military census? And the verse 14 goes on to explain it a little more. Well, these are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. Now, the Great Tribulation could either refer to a time when these categories of unrest find incredible intensity within the world, or it could refer to just the full period of tribulation that is experienced by the church. And I think that's probably more so to the point. The 144,000 is a picture of the global church. It's those from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Just as Revelation 5 has talked about, worthy is the lamb who was slain, who has ransomed a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's just Repeated once again, who are these people? Well, it's the global church. It's the church who is in this military procession. It is this church that is being led by Jesus through great warfare. It is this church who has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are plenty of, uh, what would you say, folks that would disagree with all of that. Right? Because... Of course, Tim Hey, we don't go through the tribulation. There's this funny thing that's called a rapture, and we get taken to Jesus before any tribulation comes. I just want to say, don't let movies and books inform your eschatology, your view of the end times, without first studying your Bible. Because all the way back, I mean, we could do the history. We could go back to the 1830s and John Nelson Darby and see, trace exactly where this left behind stuff came from and this idea of rapture before the tribulation came from. It's hard to prove from your Bible. It doesn't mean that folks with differing perspectives, we shouldn't hear and engage with that or that we shouldn't read the books or watch the movies. Just be careful that your Bible's leading your perspective and not just books and movies. So, who is this 144,000? It seems to be the global church. It's the church that's being led in this incredible military procession. And what is the nature of their warfare? What are they doing? They are singing. While all the powers of earth are hiding from the Lamb and crying out, who can stand? Oh, the church. The church is valiantly standing, and not just standing, but marching in step with their chief commander, Jesus Christ, and they're singing. They're singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And guess who joins them in their singing? But heaven, heaven announces a great amen to the church. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. All of heaven then responds to this military procession of the church. It's one great heaven and earth kind of time of singing and worship 
to the Lamb. But you're still left wondering if this singing army is going out or are they coming in? Are they going out or are they coming in? Are they being sealed before the tribulation, but then they're coming out of the tribulation? So what is it? How is this taking place? When is it taking place? Well, the idea, I think, is both. It's the church throughout time who has continued to stand through all kinds of tribulation, even unto death. And how has the church stood? They have stood through song. In the face of tribulation, the church sings her guts out to the glory of the Lamb. How do we face our tribulation? Well, I don't want to sing those joyful songs. I don't want to sing those truths. I'm just not ready. I get that. But if you're a Christian, you've got to know that our warfare will be worship. We've got to sing through the tribulation. Even unto death, I want to sing at the brokenness in my body. I want to sing at the brokenness of my own heart. I want to sing at the temptations that are there. I want to sing when my heart becomes apathetic to Christianity, to Jesus doing his will. I want to sing. Why? Because that aligns me to his purposes. That aligns me to heaven. I sing. Eugene Peterson says it this way. There should be a quote there if it got saved. Evidently, the last few haven't. Okay, maybe you can read that. There you go, Leslie. Can you see that one with the... (laughs) Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, these people are not only sealed and secure, they are exuberant. This is a curious but wholly biblical phenomenon. The most frightening representations of evil in Revelation 6 are set alongside extravagant praise in Revelation 7. Christians sing. (laughs) They sing in the desert. They sing in the night. They sing in the prison. They sing in the storm. How they sing. The songs of the vision are the responses to the statistics of evil. Any evil, no matter how fearsome, is exposed as weak and pedantic before such songs. Pedantic has the idea of just kind of an annoying sound or annoyance. They're just weak. With with all the flex that tribulation brings to us, with all the bigness that it seems that comes after us, with almost, you feel as though you are drowning under the pressures of this life. When Christians sing into the storm, it's as if the storm becomes nothing but weak and pedantic. This is what the church does. That's why we gather and we sing. Oh, I don't like singing. I don't have a voice. That's why, like Zach said, all right, make a joyful noise. Here we go. Get it out. Sing. And if it's maybe not the voice, maybe it's the posture that we bring before the Lord. We bow the knee, we raise the hands. I've I've said this before, and I'm running out of time, but I sometimes come into Sunday mornings and I am struggling spiritually, just kind of dragging, right? Kind of limping along. But part of the worship moment is warfare such that when my heart doesn't feel it, I want to align my body first. 
I sometimes have to raise my hands first. I sometimes just have to shout out those words through my voice in order to get my spirit aligned to where it needs to be. I want to fight with all that God's given me to engage in the warfare through singing, through song, through worship. This is how the church stands. Worship will be our warfare. Song is the way we stand. It's why uh, Scripture will even remind us, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 18, give thanks in some circumstances. Give thanks in uh, only when you really want to circumstances. Is that what it says? Give thanks in all circumstances. Listen, for this is the will of God. It's his will not to just kind of, okay, i got to muscle this song out in a moment where I feel it. He's saying, sing so you recognize my sovereignty over your storm. Sing. Get truth into you, right? Such that as you try to muscle through this, you have him in view. This is the will of God, that you would keep him in view through the tribulation. How do we keep him in view? We sing. We sing. It is our warfare. There's so much more there. But Christian, are you singing? Jody and I got a little date night in last week. Fantastic. So we, we got out to the shore, and the kids staying with some friends of ours. And uh, I, I asked them, you know, is there any place, like, right along the beach that we can go have dinner? And, you know, they re- referenced a particular place. So we went down there, and it was wonderful. We got this, uh, you know, rooftop kind of view of the ocean. But as we're sitting there, and we're, we're eating, and we're trying to not talk about church, you know, when church is life, you're like, all right, let's just not talk about church. Let's just, we're here together. Let's talk about one another. And, and so we're struggling with that, you know. But then there's live music. Oh, yes. Like, cool, the guy's up there. But then he's singing. And I turned to Jody after we had been listening to him for a while. He's, he was good. He was good. Like people dropping money. Like, he's doing his job and doing it well. But I just sat back and I just thought, There's nothing that he has been singing that has any kind of value. It's just noise. It's just sound. It's just content that is empty. It was good musically and creatively, so don't take that away. Common grace at work, yes. But there's nothing of edification, ultimately, that I can receive. And he was doing classic rock and all kinds of stuff, alternative music and all this kind of stuff, and there's just nothing of sub... I can't... I can't kind of hang my heart on anything that's being sung here. That's nothing of Jesus. It's not centering me. It's not doing any warfare for me. It's just noise. I just, I just thought, I, can't, I thank God for all the YouTube songs that we have, for the ministry of music that we have here. Music ministry is essential for the church. So praise these people who give their time and efforts to it. Honor the grace of God in their lives. Why? Because they're helping us do war together. Right? Are you singing? All right, third, and I'm just going to just briefly touch on this um, somehow. Uh, third is the church stands. 
It stands as a sanctified community. So notice in verse 14b, at the end of verse 14, it says that this army is washing their robes and has made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. The church is doing some laundry, which is a strange image. They are washing their robes, and presumably it's not washing away the blood of the enemies. It's not that kind of warfare that the church is about. They're not coming out of kind of wartime, having been bloodied by them swinging their swords at their enemies and the blood splatter going all over them. The blood and the dirt on their garments is not from the enemy, it's from the persecution that they've suffered from the enemy. It is their own blood. It is the dirt of their persecutions that is upon them. So, they are doing now laundry. And what are they doing? They're taking their robes as they've gone through this suffering and they're washing it in the blood of the Lamb, which is a backward idea anyhow. It's not going to get washed in blood. How's it coming out as white robe? It's not going to get washed there. But the whole point is this, that there is cleansing in the blood of the Lamb so that when the church goes through trial and tribulation, the point is we are to consider those trials and tribulations for Christ's sake. Yeah, I just can't really get through this. This has been so hard. This has been so hard. I don't know how I'm going to stand. I don't know how I'm going to get through. This has been a really difficult time. I just don't know. I just don't know. I just don't know. Are you considering that suffering for Christ's sake? Right? Not just persecution. Persecution obviously is a part of this tribulation suffering, but it's everything else. It's all the frailties that we carry in our body. It's all the hardships that we carry in our culture. All that stuff is now a part of us being brought through a tribulation, and as the difficulties wear upon us, we wear the dirt of our experiences, we're doing laundry in the blood of the Lamb, which means that we're actually taking the tribulation and we are, we are saying, this is for Christ's sake. Your sufferings are not just kind of set on your shoulders. It's not just about you. I, I could honor some of you point you out and embarrass you probably because you're doing this right. When things aren't going the way it should be going, when you're feeling the frailties and the conflict of relationship and the hardship and the warfare that's, that's happening, you're saying, I'm going to walk through this for Jesus' sake. I'm going to let this trial and tribulation sanctify to me my deepest distresses. I'm going to make it about Jesus. It's not about him. It's not about her. It's not about these situations and these circumstances. This is all for the glory of Jesus. That's what's happening here. They are being sanctified as a people through the tribulation that they are enduring by saying this is for Christ, Kerplunk. Right? They're doing an incredible sanctifying work of laundry. They're assigning all their tribulation ultimately to Christ. And folks, this is important to, to grasp. Sufferings are not without a sovereign context. 
We bring our sufferings to God, just as the church here is doing, and we say, O sovereign Lord, sanctify to us our deepest distresses. Sanctify us. Make us more like Jesus. Purify us through the trials. Purify us through the flood. Purify us through the fire. Because those trials will either harden you or they will purify you. Tribulation, difficulty, hardship will harden you or they will purify you. And as we jump in further into the book of Revelation, we'll see that this is all the more the trend just as God brings judgment and allows that tribulation to come upon uh, the world, is very similar to how he brought the plagues upon Egypt back in the Exodus account. Did it soften Pharaoh's heart? No. It hardened Pharaoh's heart. Tribulation will harden our hearts in unbelief. Versus for the Christians, sanctify to me my deepest distress, doing a little Christian laundry. Right? I want to see this as for Christ's sake. It will lead me to Christ. It will purify me through tribulation. Trial will either harden our hearts or purify our hearts. And what we come to find is even when it comes to the atheist's objections on Christianity, they will quickly go to the problem of evil. If God is so big, so sovereign, so good, why do we suffer? And it's the idea that he has allowed the sufferings that he's enduring right now to harden his heart from God rather than to soften his heart toward God to say, Jesus, you alone have the words of life. Where else are we to go? It's the dynamic of tribulation. It purifies. Again, I'll just say it bluntly. That's what this past season has done to the church. I stand back, and it's been a hard go, but I also stand back and say, Yes. Has it been fun? Has it been easy? No. But I say, Lord, you're going to use all these trials and this craziness that we've gone through to purify your people, to really expose what's in our hearts, to really prior begin to prioritize what we need to prioritize as your people. The church stands as a sanctified community. Is this what pain is producing in your life? Does pain produce this refining push towards God, or does it harden your heart from God? Finally, the church is a serving community. So, just to review, it's a sealed community, Holy Spirit. It is a singing community. We do warfare through worship. It is a sanctified, we take our sufferings and account it unto Christ. And now it's a serving community. Verse 15, the church throughout time, serves God day and night in his temple. Now, you may see this text, and you may say, man, it seems as though this is something that's yet to happen, that's going to happen in glory. When we all arrive there, we'll just serve him again and again, or maybe you think it's millennial uh, time if you're into all the charts and stuff. Uh, when it comes down to it, what scripture, specifically Revelation, shows us um, is that the whole point of the narrative of Scripture is bringing heaven to earth. That's why Jesus, in going to the cross, tore the veil. It's the picture that we now have access into heaven. Heaven and earth now, in some sense, overlap through the work of Jesus. And the book of Revelation will show how heaven is going to invade earth until, as one scholar says, the hell is kicked out of earth. 
heaven is coming. That's that final day of judgment. Heaven and earth are intended to be one. God dwelling with his people. That's the final vision that God holds out for this creation. Hell will be kicked out of earth as heaven comes to earth. So when you see these texts and it's like, was this happening in heaven? Is it happening here? What in the world is going on? You should see the overlap of heaven and earth. The church, yes, we get to minister to God. We get to serve God day and night. And those who have gone before us to glory, to him, are serving him day and night. And as we get into glory and heaven becomes one with earth, we're going to serve him day and night. This is just the way of the church, but it's the way for those still on earth, how we stand. Notice that the main subject of the serving is not one another. It's not a world in need. The primary object of the church's service is to who? God. It's to him. When you come in on a Sunday morning like this, when we sing these songs, does it have benefit for us together? Yeah, is it good for us to be together and serving and caring for one another? Having fun? Yeah, man, absolutely. Does it stir us up to go serve others out there? Yep, yep, yep. But the primary point of it is to minister to God, to bless him. You say, well, he's not in need. Stop thinking that everything that you're called to do is on the basis of need. It's not. It's on the basis of glory. He is the glorious one. That's why we sing holy. What does holy mean? He's like nothing else. You can't compare him to anything else. He is glory, and if he's of ultimate worth, we must posture ourselves before him. He's of worth, and so now we serve him, we minister to him, we make his heart glad day and night. But notice, as we serve him, what does he do for us? Verse 15 through 17, it goes on, he shelters us with his presence. He satisfies our hunger. The lamb then shepherds us and he guides us to springs of living water until that final day when God finally wipes every tear from our eyes. The church is a serving community. We serve to bless our God. We serve in, to minister to him first and foremost, but service to God, worship to God, ministering to God is never a one-way street. He always ministers to us. We become sheltered in his presence. He leads us to refreshment. And ultimately, he leads us home to the day where God will wipe every tear from our eyes. This is how the church stands. We stand as a sealed community, a singing community, a sanctified community, and a serving community. I'm asking the musicians to come... Uh, come up. And what I want to do is take one of those points and just spend a little time with it in closing. So I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and, and I, I'm just going to read this over you, but I want 
to share my burden as well. It's, I, you guys know this. I'm like a you know, one-string banjo when it comes down to this stuff. Since 2016, you know my burden, my heart. It's that we would be a people who know the Holy Spirit. Not just know about him, but function in his gifts. And I just want to say this first and foremost, is that fear gets in the way of that. Fear is the primary obstacle that the enemy will use to keep you from flowing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You don't need a mic at the front of an auditorium to function in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to have title pastor to function in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You get the Holy Spirit. He is dwelling in you now, right? And he's, he's wanting to get out, if you will. <laughs> he's wanting to flow through you, as Jesus promised, those streams of living water will usher from us, right? And so I, I, I want to pray into that, specifically for those of you who may have been coming through a season where it's like, man, I just haven't been able to sense his love. I haven't been able to sense his voice. I haven't been able to sense his direction, even when it comes to, like, conviction. I just, my heart has kind of just kind of felt dead to God. And I just want to pray for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. I have to do this myself. The last month or more for me has been like, like walking through a dry wilderness saying, like, God, are you still there? Are you, are you here? And, and just working again and again to say, all right, Lord, like, I want to begin to put things aside in order to pursue you again. Because I, I want this to come alive to my heart. I don't want to just read and read and read and read and just see black and white pages every morning I wake up. I don't want black and white pages. I want life. I need life. So I just want to read this text and then pray over you, that there would be a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. And if you'd say, yes, I'm, I'm like that person in some sense, that I'm just hungry, like I want to get back to hungering for the Lord. I want to get back to sensing his presence and knowing his goodness and, and hearing his voice again. Like if that's you, I'm going to just ask you to stand. And as we pray, we'll pray. So let's just stand. If, if, if that's you, let's just stand. And I'd encourage you, just posture your heart before the Lord. Just posture your heart before him. It's kind of like, I, I'm not barring the door, Lord. I'm not barring the door. I'm taking off the bars. I'm unlocking the chains and just kind of, Lord, I'm, I'm opening up the door for you to have reign. For you to have reign over my imagination, for you to have reign over my affections, for you to have reign over the things I give my attention to, for you to have reign over the things that now I do. So Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In Jesus we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So now, Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would come. We pray that the seal would be something that is conscious and known and experienced. We ask for a refreshment of our own hearts, where our own hearts feel like a wasteland of wilderness, just dry and thirsty, where nothing can really grow. Lord, bring fresh rain to bear upon our hearts. Bring fresh rain such that fruit might be born from our hearts, fruit that's directly from you. Lord, stir up the gifts that you've granted to each one of us. And Lord, tend to this issue of fear. I just have a picture of a boulder in the way of this fountain. And it's just unmoved, and the water just cannot get around it. So Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name, you bash the boulders in our hearts of fear. Bash them, destroy them. Jesus, you came to undo the work of the enemy, to destroy the work of the enemy. And so we cancel, we cancel this, this mission, this scheme to bring fear and to, get, uh, to have fear get in the way of ultimately what the Spirit intends to do. And God, just as we sung earlier, I pray for some that you would grant something of the peace that passes all understanding. Walking through the wilderness can feel lonely, it can feel so empty. So God, bring upon them, bring upon them this peace that passes all understanding. That peace comes from your presence. You shelter us with your presence. So God, we ask that you would just grant peace in Jesus' name. Just want to spend a moment of just quiet before the Lord. You can keep playing, but just... Just wait on the Lord for a moment. Just wait on the Lord. Continue to just keep your heart open before him. If he's bringing certain things to mind that need to be surrendered to him, Quietly, just hold them out to the Lord. Say, Lord, have them, have it. If there's pain, I even have the picture of just such a, a, a barren wasteland that even the, 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 the cracks in the soil are, 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 are like massive wounds in the, in the landscape of your heart. And he, he desires to just pour fresh water into those wounds, to be a balm your heart. So good shepherd, good shepherd of our souls, Jesus, we invite your sheltering presence. We ask that even this week we would just find ourselves kind of just kind of on that lazy river, just being taken up by you by your spirit, your ways, that we would hear your voice, that we would feel afresh something of your affirming love to us. 
Lord, we renounce that cold religiosity that says it's okay to just not feel anything. You are a relational God who has a heart for your children. So Lord, we ask for you to show us the assurance, your love. Pour it out over us, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.
listen. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. It's his will for you that you rejoice in all circumstances. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast what is good. And abstain from every form of evil. And now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. 